and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. Um, Let's just begin in prayer um, right now. Father, thank you so much for um, seeing us differently than we see our world, how we see our friends, how we see other people. Father, for challenging us with what the real definition of love is. Father, I just pray that we would see others through your eyes. And Father, as we continue on through this series, Father, that we would get a different concept of who you are and who we are longing to be. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, this series is going to be taking a look at how God sees the world. And this is going to be a little challenging for some of us because as we look at this, we're going to be looking into the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah is just an incredible, incredible story, but it begs the question, for God so loved the world. Now, I don't know about you, but there are some things about the world that I'm not really crazy about. It's really hard to love, but God, in his incredible greatness, loves the world. So when we're conforming our perspectives to the perspective of God, this may really challenge us as to what it means to be a Christian, as to what does it mean to be discipled, Why do we wrestle with life situations that are not in our control? And how does God call us to make meaning of those things? It's clear from our perspectives that that fairness, human justice are not always taken into account by individuals and nations. If you ascribe to the belief that God will always lead you into situations and engage you with people that you will like and that you agree with, then this book may be a little challenging for you. We all know that the world contains many incidents of violation of human rights, violence against the innocent, and other travesties. But how does God view those who perpetrate? such, and what is his message for us in terms of how we view them and how we address them? Well, to begin with, let's look at the book of Jonah and just come to an understanding that I'm not here to tell you a fish story. It's not a fish story. It's a picture of how God sees people. The perception it presents is consistent with the, well, that's pretty good, making sounds. (laughs) The perception of it is consistent with the gospel. God so loved the world. Got that. It's a picture of how God not only sees the world, but how God sees us and how he disciples us. So let's set the stage. Jeroboam's biblical resume is far from perfect, right? I mean, he was with Jeroboam too, one of possibly the Jewish people's worst kings. And in spite of everything God's trying to tell Jeroboam to get him to change his ways, how he is misleading an entire nation, Jonah says, you're okay, Jeroboam. Nothing's going to befit you. You are are walking in righteousness in a very real sense. 
and God has to call another prophet who was serving during that time, Amos. And Amos says, no, not good. You're going down. You've got to change. So Jonah kind of sees his world as like a nationalist. You know, this is my country. This is my king. God's on our side. And Amos sees it more from a perspective of God where it's like, this is not good. What you are doing, you are not doing right. So before taking on the book of Jonah, let's take a look at Matthew real quick and see how Jesus used this book. Um, He was talking to the scribes and Pharisees who told him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But Jesus replied, an evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Because just as Jonah was in the stomach of the sea creature for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment and condemn the people living today because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will stand up and condemn the people living today because she came from so far away to hear the wisdom of Solomon. But look, something greater than Solomon is here. What is that something greater? It is the commanding authority of Christ. And that means that he is the greater authority. The Pharisees who did not want to see the world according to the way Jesus saw them has to be preeminent in our life and in our perspective and in our vision. We don't understand the world by feelings, thoughts, or impressions, but rather through faith, stretching our perspective that God so loved. So let's run through the book of Jonah. It gets some insight into how God trains us, disciples us, and leads us to see the world through his eyes. Jonah is famed for being the man okay. that a fish could not stomach. Get a good picture of it? A grossly a misunderstood whale. story. All right, let's go back. That's right. Okay. Not everyone enjoys fish, especially from the inside. But the prophet Jonah is famed for being the man that a fish could not stomach. A grossly misunderstood story if there ever was one, with a whale of a lesson for contemporary life. The Assyrian Empire was the terror of the ancients, spreading out from Mesopotamia in every direction and swallowing nations in its path. Conquered peoples were deported en masse and scattered permanently into distant lands. History had proven, though, that as long as the Jews maintained moral integrity, their security was assured. But Israel had been divided into two kingdoms since 797 BCE, and its northern kingdom had lurched headlong into unbridled depravity and idolatry. Assyria was the natural choice for God's instrument of retribution. In the 6th century BCE, the prophet Jonah watched in horror as King Shalmaneser arose from his mighty capital of Nineveh. The pagan easily swallowed the Jewish tribes living in the Transjordan and dispersed them in an exile from which they would never return. He then laid siege to the Israelite heartland of Samaria, banishing two more tribes, 
while the five remaining tribes trembled in fear. Just then, the Assyrian nation ran into a spiritual crisis. The Assyrian culture of depravity had reached the limit. If they passed the point of no return, God would deliver Assyria a disastrous fate similar to Sodom, and God's instrument of retribution against the Jews would fail. To Jonah's dismay, God ordered him to inspire the enemy nation into repentance so that its downfall would be delayed, leaving it free to advance its brutal mission of forcing the ten tribes of northern Israel to be forever lost in exile. What would you do if you were Jonah? Well, let's take a closer look at the rest of the story. So let's put this into perspective a little bit. Jonah is asked to go into a country that is a major enemy of his people and his country. Let's begin with um, chapter one, verse one. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. Now we need to know biblically it's defined as a city of over 120,000. Some historians say it had more like 600,000. It's the capital city of Assyria, modern day Mazo, Iraq. It's known for its immorality, sensuality, idolatry, and human rights violations. It was a superpower and greatly feared. It was involved in the slavery of Samaritans and the tribe of Judah. It was a clear and present danger to northern Israel as well as the entire region. And even worse, it was the ultimate pagan capital of the world. You need to understand what's being asked of Jonah here. This would be like World War II. And God saying, Roger, go into Germany and tell Hitler I'm going to pronounce judgment on him. I would be scared. I wouldn't want to do it. In fact, in my little reasoning, I would say, let's rid Germany. <laughs> Why are we doing this? But, but that's exactly what he was asked to do. So basically what had happened is what happens to all people. They got a conceptualized biased interpretation of the Ninevites. See, they believed that they were all enemies. There were no good people. They believed they were all evil. They were to be devalued. And they had pronounced judgment that they were not worthy of salvation. They didn't deserve God's favor. In fact, their destruction would actually eliminate the terror and the fear that they lived with every day. They were also categorized by their nationality and their race. So Jonah has a problem. He doesn't like the Ninevites due to their race and generalized evil he believes that represents all Ninevites. His other problem, he's a prophet. He's directed to go to these people and preach judgment from God, really preach repentance, change. But Jonah's sense of justice fosters his rebellion, rebellious attitude and his resentment, bias and outlook and becomes oppositional to God's compliance, I'm sorry, oppositional to compliance with God's directive. God calls out to Jonah, go. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Tarshish was located where we now have either modern day Gibraltar or Lebanon. Um, 
whichever one it is, it is directly opposite of Nineveh. And Jonah has a bitter, resentful, and an arrogant heart. He thinks he can escape God. Now keep in mind, during this whole time, during his rebellion, God doesn't reject him. God doesn't say, I'm giving up on you. You notice that Jesus didn't say, you are just like Jonah. He didn't say that. He said the people of Nineveh repented at Jonah's teaching. He did not use Jonah in a negative fashion. Why? We'll find out at the end of this lesson. God doesn't reject Jonah, but he continues to disciple him. Now, I, I want to suggest, too, that Jonah has an extra special challenge here. I could find no other Old Testament prophet that was actually called to leave his country and prophesy against another country. I couldn't find it. If you can find it, let me know. Now, there are other prophets that are um, kind of in a refugee in other countries, and they preach again and they have to go preach against a king or they have to interpret a prophecy against the king, and we'll see that a little bit more with Don next week. But in this particular case, he's being asked to do something that no other prophet has been asked to do. And I want to just suggest that if I was God, if that was my real mission, I wouldn't have picked him. I would have fired him. But no, God, God chose Jonah. God didn't choose Amos. He used Amos before to correct the situation. He chose Jonah because God was working with Jonah. Then the Lord sent a great wind over the sea and a severe storm broke out. It seemed as if the ship were about to break up. At this point, the mariners became terrified and each man cried out to his gods. They began to throw the cargo into the sea in order to lighten the vessel. But Jonah had gone down into the vessel's hold, had lain down, and was fast asleep. As always, God is changing things up, especially in this story and especially in our lives. The ship sailing in the Mediterranean encounters a violent squall. We know from various historians that these were very common squalls, very significant storms. Such storms were not uncommon. And being experienced sailors, we can guess that this crew was familiar with these kinds of storms. But they knew that this type of abnormality where they were looking at death, this was something different. This was a supernatural storm. In fact, sailors' responses would see this as a normal storm, but Jonah's responses are not abnormal either. How many times have we been told, led, taught regarding who to love, who to forgive, who to reach out to, and we choose a different direction? Whether that be in marriage, sexual conformity with the word of God, sharing the greatest news, man can be saved from his sentence of death, and we choose the opposite response. God responds to us in various ways. Sometimes he produces or sends a storm. But that storm is not necessarily to punish us, but to discipline, direct, and disciple us, to groom our flesh into conformity with his spirit. In verse seven and eight, the crew responds to the storm. The fear of death consumes the crew and they have a sense that this is occurring for supernatural reasons. So they cast lots to determine who's responsible for the storm. Jonah wins. Now, sometimes casting lots was kind of a game. You know, you could win something, you could get something. Other times it was kind of a sick game, like they did for Jesus' garments at the cross. 
Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its very direction is from the Lord. Simply saying that it doesn't really make a difference where you cast your lot. The direction comes from the Lord. They wake up Jonah. Now this is interesting how we can sleep through a storm, isn't it? The world can know there's trouble, but we are choosing our own direction. We might call it a state of spiritual denial. It begs the question, what is our storm? What is your storm? What circumstances are you facing that God is provoking in your life for change, for compliance with his directives or mission that you don't want to do or see? What is the wake-up call we're avoiding? Jonah's response really really condemns himself. He admits to the men his heritage and the knowledge of who God is. He says, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, God of the heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, that pretty well tells you who's responsible for the sea, right? Verse 10 has their response. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? And this is the part that really gets me. They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. He had vented to the crew. He was upset about this whole thing. The story continues. Verse 11, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. And so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Jonah answers, pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Well, we can tell he's really a prophet because he prophesies against himself. He surrenders himself to the circumstances, throw me into the sea, but does not change his heart. You know, how many times do we find ourselves guilty but do not change our heart? We want to be delivered. We want that, we want that salvation, but we don't want to be changed. We want forgiveness. Um, we want everything to go our way, but our hearts become hardened, callous, or severed especially if God doesn't do what we want. The crew becomes more sensitive to God than the prophet. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die in taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard and the raging sea grew calm. And the way this is written, it seems to indicate that this was an immediate response of the sea. It was supernatural. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So even in Jonah's rebellion, his whole circumstances serves to do what? (laughs) Further the name of the Lord, right? These people now are exposed to the true God. I don't think they're gonna forget it for a while. 17, now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Here we see the sign. Why three days and three nights? This was a sign that Jesus would use later to the Pharisees in Matthew, those who intellectualized the law of God, but whose hearts were calloused to the perspective of God. So Jonah prays. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. 
From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, in the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me and deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, have brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose up to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. That is a beautiful prayer. It's almost psalm-worthy, right? But unfortunately, it's the right words with the wrong motives. He wants to save his life, and he's just focusing on the fact that God has saved his life. He forgot about the other times that people wrote psalms, right? And in those psalms, they go, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Uh, you know, uh, I'm wrong here. No one's saying, oh, those people worship idols, but I praise you, I do all this kind of stuff. And he doesn't repent. His heart doesn't change. And he continues on essentially the same path. Verse 10, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. <sighs> Not probably the answered prayer he wanted. The concept of vomiting is usually associated with sickness or food that does not set right. And Jonah still doesn't get it. He thinks he's being punished, but actually he's being trained and discipled. He is very accurate in interpreting the violation of God's commands, but has little realization of the heart of God. I want to challenge you that inside this fish, despite everything that's been happening for him, on the land after he's vomited out, God's love is very strong for Jonah. We're talking about Nineveh. He's there now. Jonah has a deep resentment for these types of people who live in Nineveh. I, I can only tell you that in my research into the, the sins of these people, these people would make Hitler look saint-like. I'm not gonna go into the atrocities, I don't need to. But I have an understanding where Jonah's resentment can come from. They worship idols, sexually immoral, violent, and even worse, they have nothing in common with them. They are Gentiles, not the chosen. Jonah righteously sees them as less than and unworthy of God's love. Now, God has moved in similar ways in history, and I'm just gonna let you know, you might not be able to read this slide up there. I had to put too much in it. But um, back in the late 60s, early 70s, Chuck Smith in the Calvary Chapel moment came to Costa Mesa to a small church in the midst of a drug-crazed, hygiene-challenged, rebellious, and immoral hippie movement. And what happened with Chuck was he was just a hymn-loving, suit-wearing servant of God, and all he wants to do is have a church of 250 people. Every church he goes to, he can never get over 200 the organizational church worldwide at that time was fighting the infidels, those communist hippies that were creating so much trouble. Their churches would not welcome them as they were enemies of the time and culture, but God put Chuck in a fish called culture. Chuck couldn't relate to these hippies, their music, and he began to see them as lost, and God's heart 
towards those lost souls ignited Chuck's love for them. Soon rock and rollers were writing Christian songs and evangelizing their fellow hippies. This ignited the world towards the gospel and the very ones who were hippies were now evangelists taking part in God's movement known as the Jesus Movement. From this point, Calvary Chapels grew worldwide and produced incredible outreach and a change in our culture. One man's, one man's faith. By the way, to Chuck's ending day, he wore a suit, loved hymns. <laughs> he was not a major rocket roller at all, but he loved people and he allowed God to work through him. Chapter three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah got up, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Everything's looking good so far. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, about a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now actually, there's a couple more words in there. The actual Hebrew text is only five words. I am not sure if I can stand up here and teach and preach that this was exactly the message he gave. This may have been more of an outline, but either way, that's the message. He did what he was told. Verse five, then the people of Nineveh believed in God and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe himself, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the dust. And he issued a proclamation and said, in Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to taste anything. They are not to eat or drink water, but every person, animal, must be covered with sackcloth, even the animals. And people are to call on God vehemently, and they are to turn, each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Who knows, may God may turn and relent and turn from his burning anger so we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their evil way, then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. So he did not do it. Chapter four, but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Then he prayed out to the Lord, he said, please Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in, in, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish, since I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. Jonah knows the perspective of God. He just says it to him. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better for me than life. But the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? Jonah doesn't answer this question. Then Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat underneath the need. I'm sorry, and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord designated a plan and it grew up over Jonah and to be a shade over his head to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. Now sun in this region is very hot and very intense. Jonah was miserable and this plant comes and it comforts him. 
until verse seven. But God designated a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and he begged with all his soul to die saying, death is better to me than life. Second time he wants to die. Some say he wanted to die in the boat. Sometimes when we get down and we're, we're just asking questions or we're feeling this way, this doesn't discourage God. Rather, for God, it becomes a question for a teachable moment and an opportunity for us to have a clarification of values. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? This time, Jonah answers, and he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plan for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals? For God so loved the animals. Sackcloth, he didn't kill the animals. And he mentions the animals. <sighs> For God so loved the people. Even though they had enslaved his people, he recognized what they didn't know and he recognized what needed to be done for those people. But why didn't Jonah? Once again, through Jonah's eyes, the Ninevites were an evil people. Jonah knew God's motives were different from his own, despite his superficial prayer out of fear in the fish. Jonah did not see others through God's eyes. This was his challenge, and it's our challenge. Through your eyes, maybe Jonah was unrighteous and should have been fired, but God sees him differently and sees you differently as well. God hasn't given up on any of us. He's in the everyday course of discipling us. The question is, are you willing to see others, the world, as God sees them? Can we see other people in the world as a church the way God sees the world? Can we see our family members, our children that are struggling, our neighbors, as God sees them? So the question is, are you okay with God loving your enemies or your nation's enemies or your political enemies? Are you okay with God taking a different political position than you've grown accustomed to and what you think? Are you okay with God being God? Be still my soul and know that he is God. That powerful psalm. Are you okay with conforming your perceptions to the eyes of Jesus? We can ignite our world for Jesus simply by loving them. It's done all the time. When we see our world through his eyes, we lose self-righteous attitudes. We learn to see needs instead of people's fallibilities. 
We hold on to the gospel because we know it is the answer for all. When we see the world through his eyes, we understand the cross. We understand why God doesn't give up on any of us and even on those people that we think are lost. I can only tell you the number of people, and unfortunately I'm, I can only, I'm, I'm, I'm estimating, but there's at least 12 that I've worked with, people that have been over 18 years in prison that found Jesus and transformed their life, and God didn't give up on them at all. And I got to be one of the people in that chain. It's just loving people, because you know what happens when you start seeing people the way God sees them? They start seeing the need for God in their life, because no one else has. Their, 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 their families haven't. Their culture hasn't. Their conscience hasn't. It takes a cross. For God so loved the world. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together today. Father, for giving us your eyes just for this brief half hour to see how you see the world. Thank you for Jonah. Father, thank you for, for just using him as an example so we can see how you see us when we go the opposite way, when we don't love, when we, we build these personal vendettas and, and we become very hate-oriented towards certain groups simply because they violated a very significant value that we believe in. Maybe even it's your values, Father. Father, teach us to love. Teach us to see them as you see them. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here, for keeping us safe. Father, give everyone safe travels getting home. Amen. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.